Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll be taking a look at our winter weather, talk about some snow plows, we'll talk about some disaster relief for the state of Wyoming for our livestock producers. In our potpourri section today, we'll take a look at the legislature, we'll talk about some upcoming shows, and we'll talk about Chick-fil-A. And when we turn to Yellowstone and look at a Yellowstone tragedy, and finally today, we'll talk about Carolyn Walkhart, the legend of Cody, Wyoming. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you enjoy the show. Taking a look at weather here on the sixth day of March, Monday morning. Sunny outside right now, just a little bit chilly. Looks like in our uh, long-range forecast, we have a little opportunity for some snow off and on in different parts of the state. Doesn't look like anything really extreme. The wind is what we're dealing with. I know here in Hot Springs County, we've got drifts, and they've gotten to the point now where they've it's warmed up a little bit, froze and such, and they're just rock hard out there. So it's going to be a while before we get rid of those. But again, the wind, as I said, has been and drifts have been a big issue across the state for travel. Again, hats off to the Wyoming Highway Department for all they have done, trying to keep up with the roads and make them passable for everybody here that travels in our state and through our state. They have had, what I saw yesterday, the report was there have been 22 snow plows that have been hit this year so far. And of course, when I say that, it's definitely disheartening that if you're a snowplow driver, you're taking your life in your hands out there in a lot of these areas. And most of these seem to be along the interstate corridors. I know the I-80 corridor was the last one I saw where a driver got hit by a semi going too fast. It started to pass someone, didn't realize that the plow was there because of the snow, and hit it. The driver from the snowplow was taken to the emergency room. Luckily, there was no any type of major injuries to the driver. But again, slow down out there, people. Those snowplow drivers are out there trying to make these roads passable. Also, as we talked about our winter weather, we had a most recent press release from the governor's office. And in that press release, in a letter to the USDA, Governor Gordon noted that Wyoming's winter weather started early and cumulating impact to sustain cold wind and snowfall have caused significant distress to the livestock industry across the state. Access to traditional winter grazing resources has become dire as well because many ranches, county, and BLM roads are drifting shut and even when cleared, continue to redrift because of high winds. Data obtained through the National Weather Service event tracking system reveals that 66.5% of the time, from January 1st to February 27th, Wyoming was under some combination of winter storm warning, blizzard warnings, winter weather advisories, and high wind warnings, far outpacing any other state in the lower 48. And as the governor noted, state County, local, and individual resources have been deployed and are being shared between entities for snow removal. But there is too much volume and wind to keep roads open and passable to gain access to the livestock. With this relief coming forward, it's going to be a big help. And right now, our livestock producers are in the start of calving operations. So some people get into February, but March is probably one of the bigger months for calving operations here in the state. So definitely these winter storms, or these spring storms, I should say, are the ones that are the most treacherous to these young animals. And I think what we've finally decided here, that the winter of 2022-23 
is probably going to go down in Wyoming history as one of the worst that we've had. Today in our potpourri section, we want to take a look at a few other items happening in the state. Our legislature has convened, and it uh, was an interesting session. I've seen a lot of different reports on what happened, and I did see some numbers from Cowboy State Daily. They talked about, and of course it was a 37-day session, 497 bills and resolutions were put forward. 39.4% of the bills passed, a total of 196. 61% of the community bills passed in both chambers. 30% of individually sponsored bills passed in both chambers. There were 23 vetoes from Governor Mark Gordon. 21 were line item vetoes in supplemental budget. There were 4,394 meals served to lawmakers and staff and 95 pounds of caffeine and decaf and caffeinated coffee brewed at the Capitol, roughly equivalent to more than 3,000 cups. So again, it was an interesting session. A lot of bills got through and we hope in upcoming episodes we're going to get a chance to visit with a few of the members of the legislature and get their feedback on a few of the bills that we were really interested in. One that we talked about before with Wendy Schuler Last year, she was on the podcast. We talked about the fairness in women's sports. Now, that bill was rebranded, I guess, and it was sent at file 133, Student Eligibility and Interclastic Sports. That did pass the legislature, and it's sitting waiting for the governor to sign. So the question about whether Governor Gordon will sign that legislation and put it in effect. But we'll get a chance to visit with, with everyone and see what their thoughts were. And I always like looking back in our Wyoming history from T.A. Larson talking about sessions from the past. And we're talking back in uh, many years ago, back in the early years of the legislature, how contentious they were. And I guess probably every legislative session probably can have a little bit of some spats back and forth. There was a lot of stuff going on, so it was rather interesting. Also, in an upcoming episode, we're going to get back. uh, Tom Kelly will be back. Tom was a candidate for the public instruction, superintendent of public instruction here in Wyoming. We're going to talk about schools, get a little bit more information on our schools and see what's happening there. Also, we're going to talk about travel. We're getting into spring. We're going to start talking about spring because with spring coming on, we know our people are going to be out and about. We're going to get a lot of people to the state to visit. And we talked last year in, in quite a few of our episodes about places to go visit, some places and what you should go see, some of the stuff that I recommended. We'll continue on with that feature as we get a little bit closer here in the next few months. And finally, we will continue on. We want to continue on looking at our mental health. We hope to continue on with our mental health moment in the upcoming shows as we continue on here. And finally, in our potpourri section, just wanted to share with people about an adventure. had a chance to go to Billings last Friday. I had to take my wife up, and after... We got done with her activities. We did make a stop at the Costco and get a few things. And we decided to go to Costco uh, before heading over to the new Chick-fil-A. For you people that are from from out of state, not familiar with the state of Wyoming, we do have a, a Chick-fil-A's. There's two of them in Cheyenne, but that's the only ones in the state of Wyoming. And Billings has not had one until just recently, just a couple months ago. They opened their first one in Billings. So, uh, having been to Chick-fil-A's across the country and, and do enjoy Chick-fil-A, 
we decided to go to the new one in Billings. It was at three o'clock when we headed there, thinking that, hey, the noon rush hour, we're kind of in that lull time. It'll be able to get through there quick. Number one mistake I made, I should have listened to my wife and went inside. The We decided to go through the drive up. We were headed back to Wyoming. And so most of the time, if, if you've been to the Chick-fil-A's, they're pretty quick. They've got two lines. They have people outside that are taking orders, getting taking your money, taking care of all that. And you get through those drive-up lines pretty quick. But not in this case. When we got into it, I had a feeling when I got into it, this was going to be a little bit of an adventure. And, of course, there's no way out of there. They've got you trapped in there, so you can't make a right and say, hey, I'm leaving, and we'll try something else. But it took almost an hour to get through there. And definitely uh, not a good not a good look for the Chick-fil-A. But again, when we got to the end, the sandwich was outstanding. They had quite a few people working at the spicy chicken sandwich, which I don't know for our Chick-fil-A fans out there what your favorite meal is. But it was outstanding. Fries were good. The iced tea was good. So I guess it was wait the hour. But I think we decided next time... I'm going to listen to my wife. We're going to go inside, and we might just wait a little bit before we go again and uh, let them get the kinks out at the Chick-fil-A in Billings, Montana. Today in our history section, we want to continue talking about Yellowstone. Last week, we talked about the start of Yellowstone Park and Fort Yellowstone. Today, we want to talk about the Yellowstone Tragedy. And this is from Charles M. Skinner from 1896. Although the Indians feared the geyser basins of the upper Yellowstone country, believing the hissing and thundering to be voices of evil spirits, they regard the mountains at the head of the river as the crest of the world. And who so gained their summit could see the happy hunting grounds below, brightened with the homes of the blessed. They loved in this land in which their fathers had hunted, and when they were driven back from the settlements, the crows took refuge in what is now Yellowstone Park. Even here the soldiers pursued them, intent on avenging acts that the red men had committed while suffering under the sting of tyranny and wrong. A mere remnant of the fugitive band gathered at the head of the mighty rift in the earth known as the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, a remnant that had succeeded in escaping the bullet of the soldiery. And with Spartan courage, they resolved to die rather than be taken and carried away to pine in a distant prison. They built their raft and laced it on the river at the foot of the upper fall. And for a few days, they enjoyed the plenty and peace that were their privileges in the former times. A short-lived peace, however, for one morning they are aroused by the crack of rifles. The troops are upon them. Boarding their rafts, they thrust it towards the middle of the stream, perhaps with the idea of gaining the opposite shore. But, if such is their intent, it is swarfed by the rapidity of the current. A few among them have guns that they discharge with slight effects at the troops, who stand wondering on the shore. The soldiers forbear to fire and watch with something like dread. The descent of the raft as it passes into the current, and with many a turn and pitch, whirls on faster and faster. The death song rises triumphantly above the lash of the waves and that distance but awful booming that is to be heard in the canyon. Every red man has his face turned toward the foe with a look of defiance, and the tones of death chant have them in something of mockery no less than hate and vaunting. The raft is now between the jaws of rock 
that yawned so hungrily. Beyond and below are vast walls, shelving toward the floor of the gulf a thousand feet beneath, their brilliant colors shining in the sun of the morning, that sheds as peaceful light on wood and hill as if there were no such thing as brother hunting brother in this free land of ours. The raft is galloping through the foam like a racehorse, and hardened as the soldiers are. They cannot repress a shudder as they see the fate that the savages have chosen for themselves. Now the brink is reached. The raft tips toward the gulf, and with a cry of triumph, the red men are launched over the cataract into the bellowing chasm where the mists weep forever on the rocks and mosses. What a story, and how it reflected what happened to the Native Americans here in the American West. September is Women's History Month, and we'd like to share an article from wildhistory.org by John Clayton on a woman in Wyoming's history. The Old West female champion, Caroline Lockhart, and Wyoming's cowboy heritage. The living room of Caroline Lockhart's house in downtown Cody boasts mementos of Western adventures. A bearskin rug covered the floor. A tame wildcat prowled the premises. On the wall hung a portrait of Sourdough Sam, the old outfitter who had accompanied Lockhart when she first became the first woman to cross Swift Current Pass in what is now Glacier National Park. On the evening of April 20th, 1920. Six of Cody's leading citizens gathered in the room. These include Ernest J. Goldpert, Sr., an ambitious young attorney, Irving H. Larry Larman, the Princeton-educated owner of a prominent dude ranch, Sid Eldridge, editor of the Park County Enterprise, a newspaper founded by William F. Buffalo Bill Cody himself, and Clarence Williams and William Lower, who helped run the town's small Fourth of July celebration. And there was Lockhart, a nationally selling novelist with a flair for the publicity. In the three years since the death of Buffalo Bill, she had become the biggest celebrity in Cody. In fact, she had arguably attained her goal of becoming the best-known woman west of the Mississippi. Although she is little known today, 1920 marked perhaps the peak of Lockhart's fame. Her novels, The Fighting Shepherdess and The Man from Bitter Roots, had been made into major movies. She had recently completed a stint as a celebrity journalist at the Denver Post, a newspaper with a region-wide circulation, and she had just returned from Hollywood, where she met with her dashing actor-producer, Douglas Fairbanks, about adapting her newly completed novel, The Dude Wrangler. She was almost 50 years old. She was born February 24th of 1871 in Eagle Point, Illinois, but heavy blonde hair and a shapely figure made her look decades younger. Many men desired her, and though she never married, she often juggled multiple boyfriends. This offended some conservative Codyites, along with the fact that she drank. When three-quarters of the town had voted for prohibition and aiming her biting, sometimes cruel wit against many enemies, she was, in short, a controversial figure, but a woman with a passion, gumption, and money to get things done. The folks at this meeting wanted to organize a new celebration, something bigger than the town had ever known. It would be more than a 4th of July party, more than a rodeo, more than a street dance. It would be an event to entertain tourists driving the newly opened road to Yellowstone National Park and lure visitors to area dude ranches. Most importantly, it would be an event to bring back the Old West. 
The first 20 years of the 20th century had been a remarkable forward-looking time in Wyoming and across the West. Homesteaders started thousands of new dryland farms. Agricultural prices were high and droughts rare. Oil replaced gold and silver as a resource that could create both booms and boom towns. Railroads continued to expand and were increasingly complemented by paved automobile roads. Electricity, telephones, and motion pictures made life increasingly comfortable and made the totems of bygone era seem irrelevant. Who needed horses? Why would anybody care about Crow Indians? Why should Wyoming pay more than a cursory respect to Buffalo Bill, whose old triumphs have since been tarnished by a divorce and financial ruins? There is no point in looking back when the future looks so bright. The western frontier, like the midwestern frontier before it, would soon be chock full of farms and industry. But Lockhart was more sentimental. She had a passion for the old open-range cattle ranches before they had been fenced into dryland farms. She admired the old characters who had been tough enough to live through those raw days, and she loved, absolutely loved horses. In sense, Lockhart's passion marks those of the other early Western novelists, such as Owen Wister from the Virginia or Zane Grey, writers of the Purple Sage. But there are were two key differences. First, few other writers lived full-time in the West. Thus, their depictions were shaped by the romantic illusions of what Easterners wanted the West to represent. Lockhart, though quite a romantic herself, had lived in Cody since 1904, where other writers nostalgically set most of their tales of cowboys and rustlers in the Old West in the 1880s. Lockhart's novels were always set in contemporary times. It was as if she was saying to the world, but especially Wyoming, look, we can still live in such a paradise. The folks meeting at Lockhart's house decided to call their event the Cody Stampede. They didn't want to include rodeo in the title because that sounded like a dude word. And besides, we did not know how to pronounce it, Lockhart later joked. They elected Lockhart the organization's president and sent out to raise funds. They also sought to attract top rodeo contestants, including one of Lockhart's boyfriends, champion bulldogger Pinky Guess. The following week, Lockhart hosted another meeting with life-changing results. This one led to her purchase with four partners of the Enterprise. She quickly took control and used the newspaper to promote the stampede. The combination proved a huge success, both for the town of Cody and Lockhart personally. The stampede grew through its early years. Its fundraising ball, held in late fall, was also a success, especially after Lockhart invited some Crow Indians to appear in traditional dress. People had renewed fascination for Indians, who were rarely seen in Cody except for such invitation. The fascination started expanding to other aspects of the frontier. In contrast to the century's first two decades, the early 20s in Wyoming were a difficult time economically, with trout plummeting agricultural prices and closing banks. Suddenly, the argument of Lockhart and her cohorts to capitalize on Wyoming's unique cowboy heritage rather than letting the state develop into a place just like anywhere else, became increasingly persuasive. Lockhart next proposed a gigantic statue of Buffalo Bill to be sculpted by Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, one of the country's most famous artists. The townspeople supported her, though they couldn't afford Whitney. So Lockhart pestered the sculptor until Whitney agreed to make both the statue and raise required funds. Whitney's fundraising campaign, conducted among New York City's wealthiest classes and top publications, 
did much to establish Buffalo Bill's nationwide reputation. Though Lockhart at first loved this new life at the helm of changing Cody society, after a few years she tired of it. One problem was that she failed to grasp the effect she was having. It's easy to see today as the Cody Stampede ranks with Cheyenne Frontier Days and the Pendulum Oregon Roundup among the nation's premier rodeos. And as the Buffalo Bill Historical Center and dozens of Old West-themed business mark Cody as a mecca of American frontier nostalgia with a profound impact across the West. Nevertheless, a stampede president, Lockhart was caught up in day-to-day frustrations. She felt, for example, that local merchants didn't provide enough support to an event that brought them so much business. She had similar disappointments as enterprise editor and owner. Her many unpopular political positions made enemies and dampened profits, and she felt constricted by the paper's weekly routine. She had stopped writing novels, and too often only got to ride her horse on the four blocks from home to the office. Through her novels, The Stampede, The Cody Enterprise Paper, and her work memorializing William F. Buffalo Bill Cody, Lockhart made an impact on her town and the West in general. But she did it all because she loved the Old West, especially horses. And in 1925, she retired to her homestead, her very own ranch, north of Lovell. Lockhart had tried to recreate the Old West in her imagination through her novels. Then she tried to recreate it in an entire community through the stampede. But she had done all this because she wanted to live herself on an Old West cattle ranch. Finally, in 1925, she realized that the best way to do this was to homestead a spread of her own. She found the most remote spot she could across the Montana line north of Lovell on a shelf between the Pryor Mountains and the Bighorn Canyon. There she established the L slash Hart Ranch and pursued her lifelong quest, hidden largely from public view. In 1950, Lockhart decided at age 79 and her then-boyfriend, age 77, were too old to run a ranch, so she sold it and moved back to Cody, where she lived in obscurity. She bought one of the first television sets in town, invited neighborhood children over to watch Hopalong Casty, a show based on a set of novels that, in 1910, had been considered inferior to her own. There was no funeral for Lockhart after she died on July 25, 1962. Instead, she had requested that her ashes be scattered over the most convenient peak. Just a rather interesting story and the impact that Lockhart had on the state of Wyoming and on the community of Cody and where it's grown to now and the stampede continues on. A lady that definitely was part of Wyoming history. Thanks for joining us today and we hope you enjoy our podcast. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand and we ride for Wyoming.